Well, good morning. My name is Dion Garrett. I serve here as one of the teaching pastors. And as you can see, uh, we're talking about things that are out of context. Uh, in this series, we're, we're taking some, some quotations, some quotes from the Bible that are often pulled out of context, that are, are shared, that are, are uh, retweeted, that are, that are taught upon, that are put on posters even, and um, things that aren't exactly right because they're out of context. And they cause a lot of confusion, they cause a lot of problems, and so we're going to get back and we're going to look at the context of, of these very important phrases. Um, but as I was preparing for this, and even getting ready for this, this series to begin, I noticed that we don't have a problem with just... Uh, quotes, we as a people, we have a problem with quotation marks as a whole. Have you noticed that? Um, we, we don't know how to use quotation marks at all. And in fact, I, I, I did some studying and I found that, um, that just with a, a slight misuse of quotation marks, you can take a perfectly good instructive sign or placard and turn it into something that is downright suspect. Like this. If you can see this. If you are pregnant, please inform the technician. So if, you're, if you're pregnant, I guess that means that if you have a beer belly and you just want to escape judgment, you can tell them you're pregnant too. They, they don't care. Or what about this one? Stairs. Or maybe it's a giant pit of death. Who knows? Uh, just open the door and find out. Uh, employees must wash hands. Wink, wink, right? Now you know why none of the employees actually eat there. Um, I love this one. Thanks for being our dad. DNA test pending, I guess. Um, and this one just speaks for itself. See that guy sleeping in the booth. Security guard sleeping in the booth. Security guard, exactly. That, that one's actually, uh, that's actually right. That was kind of fun, at least for me. But, uh, you know, it's not, it's not just quotation marks. It, it's really quotes we struggle with. And uh, today we're going to look at a quote about money which I think is one of the most well-known, most widely uh, re-communicated quotes about money out there. And uh, some of us may, may, find, may know that it even comes from the Bible. Um, but it is, it is so popular, you've probably all heard it, or nearly all of you have heard it. Um, it's right up there with other, other quotes and cliches like this about money. Money makes the world go round. You've heard that one. Or uh, money doesn't grow on trees. Or a penny saved is a penny earned. Or money can't live with it, can't live without it. Actually, I don't think that one's about money. I think it's about something else. Um, or, or there's these other famous quotes that are maybe a little less well-known, but, but still I think a lot of fun about money. Check out Yogi Berra. A nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. If you weren't laughing, maybe you'll, you'll get it later. Um, good old Yogi. Uh, I love this. Henny Youngman, this is my life philosophy. I've got all the money I'll ever need if I die by 4 o'clock. Uh, whoever said money can't buy happiness... Whoever said money can't buy happiness simply didn't know where to go shopping. Good old Bo Derek uh, never fails to, uh, to uh, I guess, disappoint. Um, <laughs> I love this one too. Money is better than poverty, if only for financial reasons. <laughs> Woody Allen. Now, I, I don't know, is it even politically correct to quote Woody Allen anymore? I'm not sure if it is, but, but I just did. Um, so all those quotes about money, people talk about money all the time. Th those quotes are carried out. Maybe you knew some of those quotes. But the quote we're looking at today is, is probably the best-known quote of all. Here it is. Money is the root of all evil. Now, how many of you have heard that quote before? Money is the root of all evil. Yeah, pretty much all of you have. But I want you to think about it for a second. If this is true, that money is the root of all evil, if that's true then how do you explain the fact that so much good is done with money? 
I mean, hospitals are built. Universities have been founded. Orphanages have been established. All because someone had money and and they they gave it to a, a good cause. You know, diseases are cured. All kinds of great things happen. Uh, art commissioned because of, because of people with, uh, with money. And uh, if money is the root of all evil, then why is it that even if you don't like it, why is it that none of us can choose to live without it? It's just not an option to say, oh, I'm done with money. Good luck bartering your way through life. And if money is the root of all evil, why does the church want it? Why do we ask for it? Why do we tell you to give it? See, there's good reason if if that statement doesn't seem quite right to you, even though you've heard it before, and that's because it isn't quite right. It's out of context. And today we're going to put it back in its proper context. Uh, And by the way, these words were actually spoken, originally spoken, by a guy named Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. And uh, he was writing in a letter to another, another young leader by the name of Timothy, instructing him about about faith and life and how he should, how he should teach others. And, uh, and he didn't say the love, or he didn't say money's the root of all evil. He said this. I gave it away. He said, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So, so not money is the root of all evil, but, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now that's a little different, isn't it? Actually, that's, that's a lot different. See, what this means is, is it means that money isn't evil. We, we kind of get it that way when we take it out of context. That means that, that rich people aren't bad people. That means that if you're sitting here today and, uh, and you are rich, and I know few of us ever want to consider ourselves rich, but by world statistics, most of us are rich. That means that God's not mad at you for being rich. That means you don't have to be sheepish about loving God and having money. See, see money isn't the problem. It's, it's not money. It's the love of money. You know what this also means for us? It means that if you're poor or if you consider yourself poor, you still have to listen today. This still applies to you. You can't just go, oh, good, one for the rich people. They need to hear this. Because it's not about money. It's about the love of money. This means that money is neither good nor evil. It's, it's just a tool. It's just an instrument that it's neutral. It's powerful, but it's neutral. And it all depends on whose hands it's in. You know, kind of like, like handguns. A lot of talk about handguns today. Handguns, they're powerful. They can be dangerous, but they're not necessarily good or evil, right? If they're in the hands of a crook, then that's bad. If they're in the hands of, of someone who's trying to protect you, law enforcement... That's good. And don't get me started on the whole law-abiding citizen thing, because I do some counseling, and I, I know that law-abiding citizen is not synonymous with sane. So don't get me started on all that thing. But, uh, but, but see, it's, it's not about money. See, see it's money isn't the problem here. It's the love of money. And, and what happens is when we take this out of context, one of two things happens. Either we get a distorted view of money, Right? If we actually believe that this is something the Bible says, that, that money is the root of all evil, we start to assume that money is evil, we start to assume that people who have money are evil, that it's bad to have money, and we get a weird relationship, a very uh, adversarial relationship with money. 
Or, so either that happens, if, if, if we get this out of context, either it distorts our view of money, or on the other side, what happens is, is, is we rob the Bible of all of its credibility to talk to us about stuff like this. Because you read that and you go, money's the root of all evil. Well, that's not practical. That doesn't make sense. That's not even relevant. And what happens, I think, for so many of us is, is that we get these things wrong. They're misquoted to us. They're taken out of context. And so we write off the Bible to ever be able to speak to us about practical, real-life stuff. If you want to know about money, go talk to a financial advisor. Don't look in the Bible because it's irrelevant. I mean, some people, obviously not you, but some people heard last week we were going to talk about money, and they decided they weren't coming to church this week. Because they didn't want to hear what, 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 what the Bible has to say because they assume wrongly that the Bible has no credibility on this subject because so much of this has been taken out of context. Now some of you, you meant to skip church and you forgot and you came here and now it's too late. <laughs> if you walk out now, everyone will judge you, I'm just saying. But, but, but let's get this right today. It's, it's not money that's the root of all evil. It's not money, it's the altogether now, the love of money. That's the root of all kinds of evil. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that really refreshing. Because I kind of need money in my life, but I also find it refreshing because who loves money? I mean, really, like, people like money, but, but come on, someone actually loving money? What in the world is that? I mean, who on earth would love money? We all would. And we all do. Every one of us in this room, to varying degrees, but we all struggle with a love of money. So so let's talk about the real issue today. It's not money, it's the love of money. And if you're not sure this applies to you, let me just give you this quick quiz. Uh, Have you ever discovered when it comes to money that you can't get it off your mind? Have you ever discovered when it comes to money that it keeps you awake at night? Does it ever give you butterflies? You know, you get a raise or promotion or, or, you, or you find some money in a pocket of an old coat. Does it ever give you butterflies or maybe even a lump in your throat when someone does something generous for you and, and, you, and you, you have a windfall? Do you ever find when it comes to money that you can't get enough? Do you ever find when it comes to money that when money's giving someone else too much attention, your neighbor, your family member, your friends, have you ever found that, that money can inspire jealousy? Now, I don't know about you, but but look at that list. Doesn't that look a lot like love? I mean, maybe puppy love. Not mature love, but love nevertheless. Chances are you felt that way about the person, if you're married, the person you're married to at one point in your life. All of these things applied to them. So now you're going to tell me that, that you don't struggle like I do with the love of money? Just look at that list. And frankly, it explains a lot about us. It explains why we chase after money harder than anything else in all of our lives. It explains why we work so hard to to get it and and to secure it and, and to stockpile it away for retirement. It explains why those of you who are retired, even though you did a good job dutifully saving throughout your life, you're kind of watching that pile of money a little bit nervous that you might run out. It's why we as a society, when we've been surveyed, no matter how much money we make, always say that it would be nice, we'd be more comfortable if we had 10 to 15% more. It's why we as a culture idolize 
those who have money, right? I mean, we idolize those who have money. We scorn those who don't. And just, just look at TV shows that are out there nowadays. There, there are TV shows about people, reality shows about people who are the most awful, selfish, petty, uninteresting, unintelligent people in all of the world. And yet we watch those shows and we admire those people. We, we turn them into celebrities. Why? Because they have money and we're fascinated by money. Even if they're terrible people. See, for so many of us, because this is so prevalent in our churches, in our culture, it's everywhere. It's, it's, it's just a basic human struggle. So many of us, we ignore Paul's warning. Because we look around and we just go, hey, everyone's doing it. And I'm not as bad as, as the rest of them. You see, this isn't about just some arbitrary moral right or wrong. What, what Paul is, is doing is he's warning us, and he says, if you love money, and that's every one of us in this room, just own it. Paul says, if you love money, you're in danger. Let's look at what he says further about all this danger. He says, um, but godliness, this is the beginning of, of, that, uh, of that section. We're putting this fully in context now. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So he sets us up by saying, hey, if you want to know what true gain is in life, if you want to know what truly matters, what true wealth is, it's this. It's godliness with contentment. And just so you think that I'm, I'm not being holier than thou here, I, I struggle with contentment. Uh, my wife was kind enough to remind me the other day that uh, I have a coveting problem. And, uh, and since she said that, I was initially offended, of course. And then after she said that, I was like, gosh, she's right, I do. I find myself just not being content with what I have. I'm always looking at, at other things, other options of life, and wishing I could have that instead. Uh, but, but here Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And then he goes on. He says, for we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Really? <laughs> who do you know who feels this way about life? There's no mention of even shelter here, right? He says, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Food and clothes, if, if I have food and clothes, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be content with my life. Do I at least get to pick the store if that's the case? Don't send me to Aldi and Walmart if that's all I get, right? I mean, chances are you don't know anyone who feels this way about life. And that just shows us how deep we are into the love of money and the things that money can give us. Now, now, I'm not saying that we should want to only live with food and clothing, and there's nothing wrong if you have more than just food and clothing. Certainly there were times in Paul's life when he had more, but Paul's saying, hey, you know what, if you take all that stuff away, and I got something to eat, and I'm not running around naked, I'm going to be happy. And the reality is for us, we are so far from that. We, we could never be content in circumstances like that. And, it, and again, it just goes to show how deep we are as a culture into the love of money. This seems unthinkable for us. We'd rather die than just have food and clothing. Watch what he says next. He really gets into the heart of the warning here. I got a lot of words highlighted because this is warning language. He says, those who want to get rich, which, which honestly is just about everybody I know to some degree, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Man, man, I hope Paul's words got your attention today. I, I hope you're beginning to grapple with the fact that maybe you, like me, like everyone else in this room, maybe you love money, maybe too much. Because there Paul has a very severe warning for us. Lots of words, lots of, lots of uh, you know, out there words about ruin and, and temptation and destruction and grief and trial. And, and yet as I look at it, I really see Paul giving us a twofold warning. The first is this, if you love money too much, it is spiritually dangerous for you. You can write that down. If you love money too much, it's spiritually dangerous for you. Paul says it can cause you to wander from your faith. Some people, eager for money, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many trials. So so he says, man, this thing is spiritually dangerous for you in the New Testament. The way Jesus talks, the way the New Testament writers talk, they see the biggest threat of your faithfulness to God not coming from the devil, not coming from some rival God. They they, they name the biggest threat to your devotion to God, they name it as money, the love of money. Do you realize that? Money, the love of money, is, is the biggest challenge to your love and your devotion to God through Jesus Christ. And Paul just puts it out there. He says, you know what? If, if, if getting rich, if, if money is too close to your heart, you are in spiritual danger. You are at risk of wandering away from what, what, what if you're a Christian, should be most important to you, your relationship with God through Jesus. Now, I realize there are some of you in this room who are, who are not Christian, and for you that's, that's not a concern. But, but this next warning that Paul gives I think is a concern for everyone. So first he says, uh, it's spiritually dangerous if you love money too much. And then he says, if you love money, if you pursue it, if you chase after it, if you make it your life focus, instead of blessing you, hear this, instead of blessing you, it will bring grief into your life. Grief? No way, money will make you happy. Here, try this. The next time you're in the grocery checkout and you see all those tabloid magazines, you know, just, just pick one of them up, look at People Magazine, and look at the people in our culture who are wealthy, who are successful, and just page through and read about their divorces and, and, and affairs and, and all this other stuff. And, and, and if anyone judges you, um, just tell them your pastor told you to look at this tabloid, okay? Say, no, no, leave me alone. They're giving you dirty looks. Say, my pastor told me to do this. Look through there, page through there while you're waiting, and tell me, do those people look happy? Some of the wealthiest people in our culture, do do they look happy to you? This week, I I, I ran across an article by a guy by the name of Sam Polk. Uh, He's written a book recently, but he used to be a trader on Wall Street and was big around the time that the whole meltdown happened in uh, 2008, 2009, and And about that time, after that time, he realized that what was happening to him on Wall Street was poisoning his soul. And so he left it all, and he started a nonprofit that helps feed people. Uh, But but this is what he said in a, a New York Times editorial. He said, in my last year on Wall Street, my bonus was 3.6 million. 3.6 million, that's a bonus. My bonus was 3.6 million, and I was angry because it wasn't big enough. He said, I was 30 years old. 
30 years old. I had no children to raise, no debts to pay, no philanthropic goal in mind. I wanted more money for exactly the same reason that an alcoholic needs another drink. I was addicted. So he doesn't even call it the love of money. He says it's an addiction. I don't know about that, but I'll tell you, does that guy sound happy? A couple of weeks ago, I heard a story about David Geffen, the, uh, the president, CEO, the founder of Geffen Records and a bunch of other things. And this guy's a billionaire. And uh, one day he was speaking, and, uh, and, uh, and he said, you know, one thing that I wish I would have known is truly money doesn't make you happy. And, and the writer who was observing this said, it wasn't those words that he said, because I've heard other people say those words. He said, after he said those words, after David Geffen said those words, it was the look of utter despair in his face as he turned and walked away and boarded his private jet alone. I just listen to the stories of people who've won the lottery and uh, pro athletes who went from extreme poverty to, to extraordinary, extraordinary wealth. Most of those don't turn out well. Some of them do, but most of those don't turn out well. They've even got TV shows and, and books they're writing about these people because it's so fascinating. And, and you will hear their story of money and the pursuit of money and what money does in their life because they love it too much. It's not a story of happiness and joy and completeness. It's a story of heartache and grief. See, why do we keep believing this lie in spite of all of the evidence around us to the contrary? There's just something about money that makes us want to love it. And when we love it, we will ignore everything, everything that tells us to be careful. So so there's the diagnosis. The warning's given. Maybe you love money too much. So what do you do now? Are you supposed to take a vow of poverty? Sell everything you have and move into a shack and give your stuff to the poor? No. And it's a good thing because none of us would do that, right? Frankly. And this is what amazes me about God is, is, is he doesn't ask us to do the extreme thing. He meets us exactly where we are and he begins to help us move from there. And that's all I want for you today. I want you to recognize where you are and begin to move from there. And uh, Paul gives us an amazing prescription for how to do this in the latter half of, of this chapter, First Timothy chapter 6. Uh, he says this, he says, Command those who are rich in this present world. Now, now again, statistically, everyone in this room is rich. This applies to us. Uh, but he also plants a seed here. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world. Uh, Paul's going to talk about a different kind of rich, uh, richness, different kinds of riches, Later on, so he says, command those who have riches in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, and you've seen that. He says, but but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And if they do this, he says, in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. So so you've got wealth in this age. Paul says there's another age to live for, and if you do it right, you will lay up for yourselves treasure as a firm foundation for the coming age. And, And get this, I love this, so you will take also take hold of life that is truly life. See, if there's any doubt in your mind that that this talk about money in the Bible is, is just God trying to take something from you. Look at Paul's words here. He says, this, this is a prescription to help free your heart 
to give you something better than riches even in this coming age. God wants to give you life that is truly life. Life to the full, abundant life. That's what God wants to give you. And so all the time when we, when we talk about this around here, we say, we say you know, this, this teaching about money, it's not what God wants from you. He does not need your money. I don't care how rich you are. It's all about what God wants for you. He wants to protect you, but he also wants to give you life that is truly life. And so, so here's this prescription. It's threefold. I want you to write this down because we all need this. The first thing that Paul says is recap of that section. The first thing he said was, put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. See, I think part of the reason that, that we love money so much is because we believe that money has the power to protect us. We believe money has the power to give us friends, to, to make us popular, to give us wealth or value in other people's eyes, to prove that we're worthy as people. I, I think we believe that money has the, the power, as I've already said, to make us happy. But do you realize that everything I just named, wealth uh, or, or value, popularity, um, you know, companionship, uh, things like protection, things like happiness, do you realize that that's the place that God wants in your life? See, that's the place that, that God has reserved for himself. He wants to be the one to give you all of that stuff. And that's because he knows that he's the only one who can truly give you that stuff. So Paul says, don't put your hope in wealth, put your hope in God. Stop chasing money because it can't do for you what you believe that it can. It can't get you friends, not real ones. It can't make you, make you feel uh, the loneliness go away. It's not going to get you real companionship. Money isn't going to give you value or worth. Not really. It will never make you feel good about yourself, no matter how much money that you have. It will never make you happy, and it will never provide you the protection that you think it will. In fact, if you live your life loving money, you will spend the rest of your life not having your money protect you, but you will live your life trying to protect it. Sweating it, stressing it when anything threatens your pile of money. My precious, my precious. Right? You've seen the movie, you know. That's how we'll live, and that's how we do live. Now, most of us are, are in denial about all this. And so we're thinking, you know what? All right, put your hope in God. Yeah, and that's fine. I, of course I put my hope in God. I would never put my hope in money. I, I may like money. I may love it too much. But of course my hope is in God. Okay, well, here's a test. If that's true. When God asks you to do something with your money, uh, maybe give some of it away, what do you do? Do you listen to God? Or do you protect your precious? You don't even have to answer because I can tell you what statistics say about Christian giving or the lack thereof. And see, if, if you're, if you're uh, not a person who is ready to join a church, maybe you come here and you're like, I'm never going to join a church because I don't want to give my money. Here's what I want you to know. Don't let that stop you because none of the rest of us do. I mean, that's what statistics say, that we all struggle with this. And I get it. I fully get it. This is a struggle I have in my life still. God's helping me with it, but, but I struggle with this. Because it seems like, okay, if I give my money away at the end of the month, what if I don't have enough left? 
What if some emergency comes up? What if, I, what if I can't feed my family? What if I can't pay my bills? If I just start giving it away, what am I going to do? Wouldn't I be foolish if I gave money away and then had nothing left at the end of the month to take care of, of needs? What if I, you know, what then? I'd just be foolish. So I'm, I'm going to wait, and if I have enough, then I'll give it. Well, what do I do if, if I give my money away and I've got nothing left? Well, I guess that's where God steps in. Do you realize that's what, that's what hope is? Hope is, where is my last resort? When my back is up against the wall and nothing else looks right, where do I look to? To whom do I look for my rescue? And for so many of us, the reason that we, that we don't want to give, we don't want to part with our money, is because we want to put our hope there. We feel secure, we feel safe when we've got enough money and if, if we start to, to chip into that, then what? Well, Paul would say that's the very reason that you need to, to not put your hope in money, put your hope in God, that, that it's healthier to put your hope in God because God's the one who will never let you down. Paul says try this sometime. See, we've got this, this, this cushion of money that's separating us from true hope in God. And in the meantime, Paul would say, did money ever die for you? Did money give its life for you? Why are you putting your hope there? Instead, it could be kind of fun to live a little dangerously. To put yourself in a situation where you have to hope, you have to depend on God and God alone. And just watch how God shows up and he will. It's amazing. He'll never lead you astray when you put your hope in him. So Paul says first, he says, uh, he says put your hope in God, not in wealth. Then look what he says next. Write this down. He says, do good. Be rich in good deeds. Do good, be rich in good deeds. So this is all about value. It's about measuring your sense of value differently aside of your net worth. And uh, Andy Stanley, the guy who wrote that Fields of Gold book, in another place has a great quote. I, I just love it. Here it is. He says, the value of a life is always measured by how much of it was given away. We don't celebrate accumulation at a funeral. Isn't that true? The value of a life at a funeral, the value of a life, the way you measure whether someone's life was worthy, the way you celebrate someone's life is by how much of their life they gave away, how much of their stuff they gave away. We don't celebrate accumulation at a funeral. When's the last time you read a eulogy and all they said about the guy was, was man, this guy had six cars and a big pool full of gold coins that he swam in naked every day. He was an awesome guy. Right? We, we don't celebrate accumulation at a funeral. Because that's the moment of truth. That's when all the lies, all of the hype gets stripped away, and we know intuitively what really matters. And it's not what's accumulated, it's what's given away. The problem is, even though we celebrate generosity, we envy accumulation. In our culture, we'd rather do, we'd rather look good, I should say, we'd rather look good and feel good than do good. And I'm speaking as one who has experience, as a guy who spends way too much money on blue jeans alone. I get it. I mean, we'd rather, and there's nothing wrong with looking good and feeling good, but, but we, we've got so much more weight on looking good and feeling good than doing good. And what Paul says here is he says, you know, if you begin to measure your, your value differently, not in your net worth, not in your accumulation, not in how you look, not in how you feel, but if you start to measure your value according to your goodness— then, then you're really scratching into a life that is, that is a really great, great life. See, it's so much better to live life this way. 
measuring yourself not by your bank account, not by the size of your house or the kind of car you drive or the kind of clothes you wear, but, but to measure your life by your goodness and your kindness and your faithfulness and your gentleness and your love and your joy and your peace. Go look up the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. It's what I've been praying for myself daily for months now and praying over my kids. Because I know, even though I'm not there yet, that that's a better way to measure your life. That if you live life measuring your, rich, your riches, your richness, your, your net worth by your, by your goodness and, and the fruit of the Spirit in your life, you can guarantee that when it's your funeral and you're in a box and people stand up and speak about you, they're going to have something to say. And they're going to have, have tears in their eyes as they talk about you as a person. And, and you will know, it'll be too late, but you'll know then that that's a life well lived. That no one at that moment cares about how much you accumulated. So, so Paul says, he says, put your hope in God. He says, measure your wealth by your goodness. Be rich. Measure your richness by, uh, by your good deeds. And then he says the last thing. He says, be generous and willing to share. See, I think even though this is third, this is where it begins. This is where life change happens. It's hard just to go, okay, today I'm going to start hoping in God more. Or it's hard to say, okay, today uh, I, I'm going to be good. I mean, pray, pray for goodness. Pray for the fruit of the Spirit in your life. But I think this is the easiest place. Even though it's the hardest, I think this is the easiest place to begin. And I think when you start here, you begin to see change in the rest of your life. Be generous and be willing to share. See, see here's what I think we don't understand about money. That the power of money is the power to steer us. I like to call money the little green rudder. So the power that money has is, is it's got the power to steer your heart. And most of us don't know this about money. We, we assume that what we give our money to, that we're, that we're following what's in our heart. But that's not true, and that's, and that's why we have such a hard time making a breakthrough in life. The truth is that money has the power not just to follow your heart, it has the power to actually steer your heart. Just like a, a rudder is a small part of a big ship, what you do with your money has the power to steer your whole life and your, your whole heart toward things that matter to you. And I think this explains why we're so obsessed with self. Because what do we spend most of our money on? Ourselves. If you want to start caring more about others... Use your money to steer your heart there. Start giving your money away to them. If you want to care more about education, put your money there. I guarantee you'll start caring about it more. You want to care more about God, put your money in God's hands and you'll start caring more. If you want to care about orphans, whatever it is, it's it's a powerful axiom in your life. That money has the power to steer you. But most of us, we react. We, we We don't intentionally use our money to steer where we want our hearts to go. And that's why generosity is the beginning of all of this. If you love money too much, begin to steer your heart away from the love of money by intentionally putting your money elsewhere, away from you. And watch how the love of money begins to break its hold on your heart and you begin to love other things. See, money isn't the culprit. It's not. We've taken this out of context, and it's to our detriment that we have. We either get a weird idea about money, or we write off what the Bible has to say. there There are not words that are more powerful and pertinent and truthful than these words as it relates to your relationship with money. 
See, money isn't the culprit. The culprit is us. We've allowed this, this tool, this resource that God has given us, that he's entrusted to us, we've allowed it to become the object of our affection. So I want to ask you today, do you want to begin to trust the giver more than the gift? Do you want to live your life loving the one who died for you, the one who's withheld nothing from you, or the things that he gives you, the tools, the instruments that he gives you? See, if you want to change that relationship around, then Paul says, put your hope in God. Do good. Be rich in good deeds. Be generous and willing to share. And you will begin to see your heart change, your life change. You will take hold of life that is truly life, and you will discover that God is a God who wants nothing from you. He's got everything he needs. He doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your service. But he's a God who wants so much for you. And if you ever doubt that, just look at the cross. Why would God give his son on a cross unless it is absolutely true that he wants great things for you and nothing from you. Let me pray for us that we might believe that. Father in heaven, thank you for being so incredibly generous with us. Thanks for speaking these words of truth into our life and and just trying to help us figure out life that is truly life. God, thanks for not abandoning us to our lost, empty, hopeless, sad, destructive ways. God, I pray today that you just reassure us that you love us. Reassure us today that you've got no ulterior motive for our lives. That in the beginning you were all grace. You just wanted to give and that's still who you are. God, do that to open up our hearts on on this topic so that we might actually listen and trust and believe in what you have to say. And so that we might begin to use this incredible tool, this this incredible resource that you've given us called, called our money. That we might use it to steer our hearts toward things that matter. Things that are closer to your heart. Even towards eternal things. So God, help us just to trust you. Begin to uh, chip away the, the hardness of our heart on this subject. And the fear and the worry and the dread. And Lord, help us to trust your goodness. Your goodness is always enough. We thank you for it, most of all in Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.